0: What a privilege God has given us to gather together as believers and worship. And and I've been trusting God this week and praying that as I study the word, that he would speak to me and teach me. And I've been praying that for us as well, that as we hear the word and as we are exposed to it, that we would respond and that we would would listen to what God has to say to his church. So we're in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 13 today. I'm going to read the whole Lord's Prayer. I'm calling it the Disciples' Prayer. I'm going to read from the ESV today, the English Standard Version. It's very similar to the New American Standard, which I usually use. It is a literal translation, but it, uh, I like the way it reads, and so we're going to use that today. We're going to start at verse 9, so Matthew 6 and verse 9. Pray then like this. And Lord God, as we come to your word today, we want to thank you first and foremost that we could be here today. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word. You are here with us. And Lord, we just pray that you would teach us, that you would open our eyes, that we would see what you want us to see today. And Lord, as we think about this prayer and as we have the privilege of of praying and learning about how Jesus wants his followers to pray, I pray, Lord, you give us new eyes to see new insights, and that you would change us more and more into the people, into the households, and into the church that you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me say right off the bat that God wants us to fully rely upon him. God wants us to fully rely upon him. Now, that's tough. That is a tough calling. In an article on prayer entitled, Getting to Know Him, Andrea Sayo wrote this, she writes for World Magazine, and she said, Last December, trying to be on time to Nasia's preschool Christmas party in Philadelphia, I asked the Lord out loud so my granddaughter would hear for a parking spot. After 15 minutes of circling, I had to resort to the multi tiered garage, $8. You didn't come through, God, I complained inaudibly. He said, child, you asked for a parking space. I gave you a parking space. You're the one who has a problem with eight bucks. She goes on, I realize the anecdote casts me in an unflattering light, but actually it represents progress for me. I never used to ask for parking spaces, ostensibly because it's a petty, Non-kingdom minded request, but really to protect myself and God from looking bad Not to harp too much on the divine dispatching of cars, but that is after all the focus of the prayer issue Just how involved does God mean to be in our lives? Just how involved does God mean to be in our lives? I would say very (laughs) very involved, completely involved, as much as we will cooperate with, as much as we will acknowledge. Any idea, by the way, of fixating on God, which we looked at last week, the first part of the, of the Lord's Prayer, and any idea of fully relying on God is a believer's response to God's desire to engage with his children. Last week, let's do some review, by the way. Last week, we looked at the first half of, of the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, the main idea was one of fixating on God, focusing on who He is, uh, focused on, on His character, His person, His nature, His attributes, not just His name, but His person. Now today, in the second half, the idea is on fully relying on God, on focusing on Him. It's if, if, now, by the way, if fixating or focusing on God was, was a, a tough thing, For us, can you imagine how tough fully relying on God is? It's hard for me to fixate on God. It's hard for me to focus on God on a daily basis. It's even harder to fully rely upon him, to trust him completely with everything. It's so easy to be self-reliant, isn't it? It's so easy to be self-sufficient and think that we've got to make it happen. As I said last week, the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer is so dangerous, there should be a warning label. Caution may cause life change. Caution may cause you to fixate on God Almighty. Caution may lead you to trust God more than you ever dreamed possible. His disciples, Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them to pray. So Jesus teaches them to pray. He gives them this model prayer. He gives them a pattern for prayer. Not merely something to recite Though the prayer is is very prayer worthy, it's the word of God, and and it's the words of Jesus, and it's it's in the form of a prayer, so you can pray this. But it's not just something to be be rattled off, Uh, it's something to be meaningfully prayed, but it's more than that, it is a pattern, it's a model for prayer. It's brief, it's to the point, it covers everything that needs to be covered in prayer. Now in verse 9, Jesus says, pray in this way pray like this now in in contrast to the religious and the unreligious people who pray like this he says no don't pray like that pray like this pray in this way pray the way that i'm going to show you you've asked and i'm going to give you the answer and this prayer contains six requests six petitions the first three which we looked at last week focus on god himself who he is the second three focus on human needs that god meets Things that God does to meet the needs of humans. And it begins, the prayer begins like this. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Christ's followers addressed God as Father. Showing the, re- the unique relationship they have with the unique Son. That they have come into relationship with God the Father through the Son. As Jesus said in John fourteen six. No one comes to the Father except through me. According to Jesus, as we pray, we are to focus on God's name. Not just the titles he has been given in scripture, but who he is. His person, his character, everything about him, we're to celebrate as we pray. We're to focus also on his kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Praying for God's kingdom program to be fulfilled. For Christ to reign in the hearts of those he has saved. For Christ's return and reign as the king of kings and lord of lords. See, we're saying when we pray, thy kingdom come, that we want God to rule in his church. We want him uh, to rule in the hearts of those who he has saved by grace through faith in Christ. We want him to, uh, others to come to know him and, and accept his rule in their life. And we also, we wait for Christ's return when he will rule forever. We are to focus also on God's will. Thy will be done. Whatever you want, God. And praying like this, when you pray like this, with a heart that truly means what it prays, because it is so easy, isn't it, to pray the Lord's Prayer, not even thinking about it? Unbelievers and believers alike pray this prayer and just rattle it off, and don't even think about how serious and how important these words are. Praying like this, though, with a heart that truly means what it prays, it counteracts, as we saw last week, fixation with earthly things. And we get really fixated on earthly things, don't we? I do on a a moment-by-moment basis. So it it, it counteracts our fixation on worldly things. I think that's why Jesus said, pray then in this way. Keep praying like this. It's a daily type prayer. And it reassures wavering faith. We all have doubts. We all have questions. We all have concerns. And we waver. We leak. And so it, it, it reassures our wavering faith. It also dismantles functional atheism. Living as if God doesn't exist. And people who pray like this display a lifestyle of worship. It's not just a a prayer that's all by itself. It's It's a lifestyle, a pattern that's woven into their lives. They show a growing depth in wisdom. And they show a soul at rest in God. Even in the midst of the most horrendous things that might happen in life, their souls are at rest in God. It is well with my soul they can sing. And the change that comes about is not automatic, it's not usually automatic, it's progressive as God works in the hearts and lives of his people to conform them to the image of Christ. And basically the whole idea of the first part of the Lord's Prayer, of the disciples' prayer is this, God, you are awesome, you rule whatever you want, God, you're awesome, you rule whatever you want, and because of this, because of this, we're going to trust you to meet our needs. We're going to trust you with everything we've got regarding everything in life. It's basically praying with abandonment to the will of God. It's basically basically the idea of of giving it all over to God. But, you know, that is tough. If you think focusing on God is tough, the idea of being abandoned to the will of God is is even more so. I know it's something that gets ignored in my life all the time. I'll I'll pray, God, show me your will but then I'm trying to work things out and trying to pull the strings and and so on and so forth and things get confused they get mixed up I want what I want give me what I want no one gets hurt we live like that and it's a fair question to ask do we really want what God wants when we pray that we want what he wants do we really want that And if the answer is yes, and I'm going to say in this room today that 99.9%, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. We want what God wants. So if the answer is yes, how do you know what God wants? Well, we know this. We know that he wants us to be doers of his word and not just hearers who fool themselves. We know that what God wants will never contradict what he has said in his word. We know that what he wants will not violate his teachings. And so when we pray, Lord, we want what you want, whatever you say goes, we're abandoning ourselves to the will of God, to the program of God, to the agenda of God. And what we do when we say that is, and my agenda, my program, and my will takes a lower place takes a back seat to your will, God. That's what we're praying. Now, as we focus today on the second half of the, of the disciples' prayer, what you see is three categories of need, three categories under which pretty much all of human need falls. Um, what needs are we to ask God to meet? What are we to ask God to do? Look with me at verse 11. Verse 11 says this, Give us. begins that way. Give us. Give us what? Said, give us this day our daily bread. Now, I like bread. I'm Italian. Of course I like bread. I like the kind of bread with calamata olives in it. It's always made with olive oil as well. And it's got uh, roasted garlic in it. That's the kind of bread I like. Is that what Jesus is talking about us asking? No, of course not. Give us this day our daily bread. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, bread here is a figure of speech for food. But here, it, it refers to a wider range of needs that believers have. Uh, in, in the physical realm, in the emotional realm, in the spiritual realm, uh, all of our needs. We look to God to meet our needs. So bread equals our needs. Give us Meet our needs today, Lord. We look to Him. We're not adequate or self-sufficient in and of ourselves to meet those needs. We are dependent on God if those needs are going to get met. And God doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves. This is not, you know, man versus wild Christian version. This is not uh, survivor man Christian version. Uh, we don't just go out and, and God says, you're on your own now. Let's fend for yourselves. That's not, that's, that's not the way it is. This is daily. Give us this day our daily bread. We are indicating that on a daily basis, we are dependent on God for what we have. That seems to reflect uh, the daily dependence that the people of God, the people of Israel had from God for the manna in the wilderness, that he gave them this special food that they ended up not liking so much because they eat, ate it every day, and, and they wanted other things. Give us more tasty food. Give us more savory food. I know what that's like. But he says, no, uh, this is what I've given for you, um, and, and i provided for you, and don't, don't Take more than you need for that day. Don't uh, hoard my provision. Don't save it up. And you know what happened is when they, when they saved at the manna, it, it, it spoiled and became filled with worms. No preservatives. So, so God is asking us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, that we're to daily rely on God for everything that we need, and that God leads us to, to develop a continual growing dependence upon him we're all in process right we're all at different levels of growth and sometimes we take steps back and, and sometimes step forward but he wants to develop a growing dependence upon him so often many of the things he he lets into our lives he allows in our lives is going to help us develop that growing dependence upon him you find yourself in a situation that you can't handle god wants you to develop a growing dependence upon him you find yourself above, uh, over your over your head uh, with, with maybe the, the job that you have or with the, the relationships that you're dealing with. God wants you to develop a growing dependence upon him. He doesn't want you to go independent. Matthew chapter six and verse 34. He says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He says, leave tomorrow to me. You deal with today. Don't worry about tomorrow. You can't do anything about it. You don't even know you'll be here tomorrow. You might be there. There. You might not be here tomorrow. Don't worry about it. That's my job, he says. So what are we doing when we're praying this? Basically, this request, this give us this day our daily bread, we're asking God, God, provide for us whatever we truly need each day. Provide for us in that way. This is a powerful statement of trust and dependence upon God. We're asking God, give us what we need. Don't just give us what we want or what we think we need, but give us th- meet the needs that you truly know we have. Meet the needs that you truly know that we actually have. In every area of life, and food and clothing and care and provision. Some of you are, are battling Cancer. You go to the doctor and, and you say, Lord, help this doctor, help me. Help Use the medicine, use the techniques, use the gifts you've given people to do your will in my life. My desire is for healing, but your will be done. And you go into, a, a, into an office situation uh, tomorrow that, that has people that are diametrically opposed to your world view. And maybe there's relationship issues going on. And maybe people are, are at you for this or that. And you go in and you say, God, meet my need to do my job well, but also have an effect for good on the people that I'm, I'm associated with. You might have a family situation that is just horrendous. And you don't know the answer. That God meet my need to be able to do what you're calling me to do and dealing with this issue? What we're saying, basically, is, Lord, we trust you to provide. We trust you to provide. Now, look, here's where it gets really tough. Most of us can buy anything we want, anytime we want. Now, you say, uh-uh, I don't have the cash. Well, you got the plastic. And you can just swipe the card. Say, well, my credit limit's up. Well, you can get more of that plastic, right? We, most of us, can buy anything we want, anytime we want. Unless, of course, God has given you a very wise spouse or good friends who say to you, no, you shouldn't do that. But, you know, we, we tend to forget that everything we have is, is, is from God. And, and I'll tell you, the people that go without for a while, the people that go without for a while, they remember. But then they forget because they leak too. And they forget and they've got to be reminded. We trust you to provide for us, Lord. You know, good parents provide well for their kids. They provide, though, and kids, you can go with me on this. You understand this. They provide you what you need, not what you want all the time. Good parents provide you vitamins and veggies and another V word I can't think of right now. They provide you the things that you're like, I don't want to eat that. No, it's good for you. Eat it. It'll help you grow. What they don't do is they don't give you junk food all the time. They don't give you Cheetos and Doritos and Fritos and whatever else all day long. Now, sometimes, within reason, on on the... You know the boundary they'll give you some of that but they won't give you that as their main main meal all the time but parents provide what their children need well god provides for us what we need not always what we want here's what happens when you start getting everything you want and even when you and i'm sorry kids but i know this this might happen is if you get what you want too many times, and, and many of us as adults see this, we get what we want as so many times, we're able to swipe the card or whatever, we start developing a sense of entitlement. I deserve that. I need to get that. And people around you will say, of course, you, you need to do that. Pamper yourself. And it, and it develops a, a sense of entitlement. It breeds a sense of entitlement. It spoils us. But appropriate provision breeds contentment. If we have food, if we have clothing, with these we shall be content. So so the idea is this, is that praying for daily needs doesn't breed greed, ought not to breed greed. The real test, and J.I. Packer said this, he said the real test is when a Christian has prayed for today's bread. And so you've prayed for today's bread, and he says, will you now believe that what comes to you, whether it's much or little came from God. It's God's answer according to the promise of Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Will you believe once you've prayed for daily bread that what comes to you, whether it's much or little, that it is God's answer according to that promise? And will you on the basis of that promise be content with it? And, and be grateful for it. It's the $8 parking space all over again. So we, we ask God, meet the needs that we truly have each day. We, we trust you to provide for us. The next request is probably the most challenging thing we could ever pray. Look at verse 12. See, we want verse 12 to end halfway through the verse. And forgive us our debts, period. That's not the verse. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's why it's one of the most challenging prayers we'll ever pray. Forgive us our debts. And these are not financial debts. Someone may well do that for you out of the kindness of their heart. But that's not what we're talking about here. These are sins. Forgive us our sins. Now, there are five main words in the New Testament that's translated uh, uh, for sin. And um, let, me, let me give them to you. The first one is, is the most common word uh, in Greek. It's hamartia, but it's, it's basically missing the mark. Okay, missing the mark. That's the most common uh, word used in the New Testament for sin. But there's also trespass, a whole different word uh, peroptoma, but it means to slip and fall Now if you go somewhere and you see a sign that says no trespassing you think I can't go there This actually means to, to slip and fall it's, it's this idea of being careless and not intentionally wanting to do so but you sin because you weren't watching and you slip and fall Okay, there's another word transgress Transgressors, okay uh, That means to step over the line You know the lines there you step over it you go face over the line even though you know it is there. Uh, transgress. Go beyond God's limits. There's another word. Lawlessness. This is the worst. It's anomia in Greek. It is intentional sin on purpose. Intentional sin on purpose. Active rebellion against God. Active rebellion. So you've got these words that are used. Lawbreaking and, and shortcomings and rebellion and, and missing the target, you know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and they're, all in, they're all used in relation to God. They're all used in relation to our relation to God. But here in verse 12, the focus is on unpaid debts. Forgive us our debts. It's in a whole other Greek word. And what it does, and this is pretty cool the way Jesus designed this, it covers all types of sin, all the kinds of sin mentioned it refers to moral or spiritual debt and here's the thing we owe god a debt we owe god something we owe god unquestioned loyalty because he is god almighty all present all knowing god only wise we owe god unquestioned loyalty we owe god love for him and love for other people on a daily basis. That's what we owe God, day in and day out. Sin is failure to pay that debt. Sin is failure to pay the debt that we owe God. And so what happens is, we are to ask God to forgive us, to release us from the debt that we owe due to our sin, and that messes everything up, the sin messes everything up. And here's the part that's hard. We're praying, we are asking God to forgive us, to release us from the debt, We owe to him due to sin. And we're praying this. Just as I forgive other people, God, please measure your forgiveness in proportion to the forgiveness that I've actually shown to other people. That's where it gets very challenging. If you're unable to forgive, and we're going to look at this next week, we're going to look at at verses 14 and 15, and and the question, is forgiveness conditional? But but let me just say this, that if if we pray this, We are literally praying, God, forgive me, just like I'm forgiving everyone else. Jesus wants us to be ready to forgive, always, at a moment's notice. And we are saying to God, God, we trust you to pardon us. We trust you. And the evidence that a a person is truly forgiven is that they are willing and able to forgive. If you wonder about this, just go to Matthew 18 and start at verse 23 and read that this afternoon. And test that. Ask God, how does this relate to me in my life right now? Is there any sin, Lord, that you want me to be made aware of? Uh, search my heart, God. Examine your own heart. And, and, and the first thing, by the way, um, this is the first thing that was never in Jesus' prayers. Jesus didn't need to pray this because he knew he was sinless. What did he say in in John chapter 8 and verse 46? Who, which one of you convicts me of sin? You can't do it because I'm sinless, basically. So what this is, this is for us. Forgive us our debts is for us to pray. Back in 1662, the Book of Common Prayer. In the Book of Common Prayer from 1662, in the communion service that is listed, it was taught to Christians to call the guilt or burden of their sin intolerable. You say, well, yeah, sin is intolerable. It's so hard to handle. That's not the reason. The reason was the intolerable grief that it caused God to see his own family members sinning against him. It's, it's the whole idea that before you became a believer, you did something and it didn't seem like that big a deal. After you became a believer, you look back and it seems like a huge deal. And you'll do something now that didn't, what would be nothing back in your old life, and this is a big deal because it is an affront to God. It is, it is causing um, intolerable uh, uh, situation, the grief that is brought to God by the sins of his people in his own family. Well, how sensitive to, to this are we? How sensitive to the Spirit of God are we when we are convicted of sin? The true Christian will seek to face his sin through self-examination, but also they, he will, by the Spirit, be willing to put the, to death the deeds of the body. Romans chapter 8, and verse 13. By the Spirit, it will put to death the deeds of the body. And this, by the way, is not human sin management which will only get us in trouble. This is by the spirit of God. And as the spirit of God convicts us, we confess and turn from. We admit it. We turn from it and we say, God, we don't want to go there. So we pray, forgive us our debts, just like we're forgiving others. Look with me in verse 16, uh, verse 13. Verse 13. We also are to ask this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us literally from the evil one. What does it mean, do not lead us into temptation? What does that mean? Now, if you think of our English word temptation, it always has a negative connotation. It means to get someone to do something wrong, to get someone to do something evil. But the New Testament word is a neutral word. It is not positive or negative. It depends on the context in which it is being used. And what it means, the the, the Greek word um, uh, purosmos, basically, if you want the word, it means to test or prove something, to see if it's genuine. Now, we know that God does not test people or tempt people to evil. We know that Satan only tries to get people to do evil, that God only wants us to do good, Satan only wants us to do what is bad, and God tests us to prove our substance. That Satan tempts to devour and destroy. But we should be praying that the testing of our faith will not become an occasion for temptation to sin. That it reflects, praying like this reflects a heart desire on the part of believers to stay away from sinning. We don't want to go there. That we are going to not, we don't want to do wrong. That we want to avoid the dangers of sin that it messes us up so much that we are praying that God would keep us from that because we don't trust ourselves. We do not trust ourselves. We know that we are weak. We know that we are prone to, to go and, 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 and fall away from God even. And so we don't want to go there. So we express a desire to stay away from evil because we know that when we become self-sufficient, we fall. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. For Jews, the standard morning and evening prayer was this. Bring me not into the power of sin and not into the power of guilt and not into the power of temptation and not in the power of anything shameful. That's what they prayed every morning and every evening. The basic idea is this. We're weak, God. You are strong. We're weak and you're strong. So Lord, keep us strong in the midst of testing so that we will not fall into temptation. It's like 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, No temptation has overtaken you but such as he is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but he will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape as well. The thing is, we're praying, deliver us from evil. Literally, deliver us from the evil one, from Satan. Satan's influence, by the way, is behind every attempt to turn a testing into a temptation to evil. So Jesus teaches his disciples that they need to rely fully on God. Not only for physical sustenance, but for moral and spiritual victory as well. Here's the way God does it. He tests us to make us more godly. Satan tempts us to, to make us ungodly. And God doesn't tempt us with evil. He never does. He gives us trials to make us stand, not fall, to reveal substance in us. It's like Job. When Job went through such horrendous situation, children dying, things getting ta- all of his life getting taken away, even his health, he said this. He said, when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. All the junk burned away, pure gold. God brings about tests to help and to strengthen us. And intent is key here. Intent is key. God is all good all the time. Satan is all bad all the time. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. You want to know what he is doing right now? What Satan is doing right now? And how we should address the situation? In 1 Peter chapter 5, speaking of humbling ourselves before God, Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt us. Verse 7, it says, cast all your anxieties upon him. We live with a lot of anxieties. We worry. We doubt. It says, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. And then it says in verse 8, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, and he is always against Christians. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour What are we to do? Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brethren who are out throughout the world, and that when you have suffered for a little while, when you have gone through this temp- temptation, when you have gone through this testing, the God of all grace, who called you to eternal glory, reminding you that there is heaven awaiting, he will, what? Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. We're praying that your kingdom come forever. We're asking God to to deliver us. We're literally praying. We're saying, God, we trust you to protect us. We trust you to protect us. Parents protect their kids. Good parents always protect their kids, but it doesn't mean overdoing it. It doesn't mean hovering over them. It doesn't mean overprotecting them. It doesn't mean domineering them. It doesn't mean to control every single aspect of their lives. There's an appropriate balance of parental oversight and and freedom that is given as as children grow but god in our in our relationship with him he gives us strength to act wisely so that we can love him and 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 act wisely love him and then do as we please and because what we what we will please is what pleases him god tested abraham takes us to Genesis chapter 22. There came a day that God tested Abraham. And he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go offer him on the mountain, which I tell you as a burnt offering. And we know what he did. He got up early the next morning. He got all the materials. He brought people with him, and he brought his son. And he brought wood, and he brought fire. And he said to his people, you stay here, and I and my boy will go, and we will worship, and we will return. Because he was walking by faith, not by sight. His son even asked him, Isaac even asked him, Father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And he says, by faith, not by sight, the Lord will provide for himself a lamb, which we know he did. God was testing Abraham because he wanted to show the strength that he knew he had built into him. We can go on and on. There is so much in this, in this prayer but I want to move on to some main ideas that this prayer portrays. That the, the, the disciples' prayer has some main emphasis areas. And I'll just give you four. But the first is this. One emphasis is, that, is trust. It's so clear. It's trust. It's huge in our relationship with God. It's, it's big in all of our relationships. Trust. We learn to trust some people. We learn not to trust other people. And we learn by experience. We learn if they have shown themselves to be trustworthy, we trust them. If they have shown themselves to not be able to be trusted, we don't. Some have been burned before and so they find it difficult to trust people, even trustworthy people. Some are naturally suspicious. But how do we usually learn to trust someone? By them proving themselves to be able to be trusted, to be trustworthy. Now we talk about trusting God, who is completely trustworthy, 100% trustworthy, totally. And what we're talking about is abandoning ourselves fully to his will, that we are saying we want your agenda. Once again, we trust you. A need gets met that we're trusting him for, we give him credit. We want to follow Jesus. We want to worship and obey him. We want to trust. That's what we're called to do. So we watch, so we pray, so we wait upon God. And the great thing about it is, you do not have to be a good prayer. It's not like God said, "You need to learn to pray really really good so you you sound really really good and people think you're great at praying." You don't have to be able to be good at this. That's good news. All you have to be, as one writer put it is, desperate for God. All you have to be is desperate for God. You cry out to him. You don't have to be all good at it. You just have to be desperate. So trust is a huge emphasis. A second focus is forgiveness. We see that today. Forgiveness. And all ages can understand this. All, everyone who, who comes to faith in Christ can understand the powerful goodness of prayer. It doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are. But there, That there is no life, no hope with God without Jesus bearing our sins penalty so that we might go free to go about our lives without a burden of guilt that crushes us. See Christ's death paid for our sins, past, present, and future. God's verdict of justifying believers for Christ's sake, is valid forever. It will never change. So why the need then? Why Jesus saying we should mention daily sins to God? Why the need to mention daily sins to God? It's because of who God is as judge, but also who he is as father. As judge, he has declared us righteous in, God, in his sight by the shed blood of Jesus so that all who come to faith by grace in through Christ are justified but our daily sin we know does not overthrow our justification but things will not be right relationally with our father if we let sin block the way things will not be right relationally with our father until we have admitted our sin because we still sin daily and so daily admitting of that sin is needed See, when we ask for forgiveness, we say, God, forgive me of my sins, my debts. We are basically saying, I need you. We are acknowledging our need for him every day. So forgiveness is a big focus here. Another one, which is a word we don't use very often, but persistence. Persistence is a focus in this prayer. It's like Jesus said, keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking. And God's well never runs dry, but he is not A vending machine so we get all we want. Give me two of those and one of those. Oh, change that. Give me another one of those. It's not that way with God. A lot of times we just go, gimme, 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 right? But here's the interesting thing. You can can boil down all of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels to one word. Ask. He wants us to ask. That's a tough one for us. And the waiting, by the way, once you ask, the waiting is the hardest part. The waiting. Uh, in that same article, Andrea Seyu said this. She said, I'm learning that waiting for answer to prayer is no more empty in activity than a molecule is empty of microbes. We are not to picture a lazy boy chair, but Eisenhower in the weeks before D-Day. Living by faith and not by sight is what we do between times on our knees and often in a desert. God, she says, has little interest in being our personal prayer vending machine and much more interest in a dynamic relationship. In his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller wrote this, when we have a praying life, we become aware of and enter into the story that God is weaving in our lives and prayer is not the center of this book. It's like Eugene Peterson said, prayer is answering speech. Prayer is not primary God's word is primary. Our answering speech is secondary. So Miller says, prayer is not the center of this book. Getting to know a person, God, is the center. We are actors in his drama, listening for our lines, quieting our hearts so we can hear the voice of the playwright. And he says, you have to surrender your desire to be in control and to figure out how prayer works. He says, I often find that when God doesn't answer a prayer, He wants to expose something in me. Our prayers don't exist in a world of their own. He said, I didn't learn continuous prayer. I discovered I was already doing it. I found myself in difficult situations I could not control. And all I could do was cry out to my heavenly father. And it happened often enough that it became a habit, creating a rut between my soul and God. Jesus' ambiguity with us creates the space not only for him to emerge, but us as well. If the miracle comes too quickly, there is no room for discovery, no room for relationship. Jesus is engaged in a divine romance, wooing us to himself. There is this persistence that Jesus wants to be present in our praying, that we will come again and again and again to him who we need every moment of our lives. Let me give you one last focus and then we'll close. The last focus I'll mention is this, community. Community is huge in this prayer. You say, where is it? Well, look, you cannot say I or my once in this prayer if you pray it it as it reads here. It is us and our. It is we, not me. We pray with, for, and in unison with the body of Christ. What this is, is full identification with the family of God. This is full identification with the people of God. His blood, Jesus' blood, has washed away our sins. The Father's wrath was completely satisfied. We once were enemies, but now we are family members. Contrary to popular opinion, the Christian life is not all about you individually. It is not all about you individually. The Christian life is about Jesus and what he does in and through you as a part of his family, as a part of the bigger group, the community of believers together, being used by God for his glory. There is a place at the table for all who love Jesus, for all who call him Savior and Lord. There are no exclusions in God's economy. We are to live in community. We are to be helped and help others. It's the Titus 2 thing. Older teaching younger. Younger receiving from the older. I've been really encouraged recently. I don't have people coming to me and just saying, I want to be mentored. I don't have people coming to me and just saying, I want to mentor someone. I've been so encouraged because I've had people coming to me saying, I don't want to just be mentored, I want to mentor someone too. I want to be mentored. And mentor someone. They're looking both ways down the road towards those that are further along than them. What can they learn from them? And those that are further behind them that they could, that they could teach. That's how God wants it in the body of Christ. So we ask, ask, look around and say, Lord, who, what, when, where, how? How do you want me to engage with people? See, this kind of praying is, is really A a way of living. is a way of living, not just saying a prayer. It is in any time, anywhere, any condition, come to Jesus kind of thing. That no matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, you can bring your shame, you can bring your heartache, you can bring your doubts, you can bring your fears, you can bring your pain, you can bring your questions, you can bring anything to him because he can handle it. That he wants you to come to him. Come to him broken hearted. Come to him bent. Come to him bruised. Come to him happy, sad, seeking, pursuing, grieving, rejoicing, confused. He promised he would never leave you nor forsake you. If you are in Christ, he says to, he says to you, my child, I am your father. So come to me. Ask me. Ask. My prayer is changing because I'm taking Jesus' words Literally, and I'm asking, and I'm asking for big things, not just little things, and everything in between. So Jesus says, come to me. There are no walls between us. I have broken every barrier down, he says, so we can pray, and we can pray freely. So join me. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for how awesome you are. Lord, thank you that we can come to you freely and address you, and talk with you. Lord, we just say, you rule. We just want whatever you want. And Lord, we trust you to provide, and to meet the needs you know we have. And Lord, we trust you to pardon us, to forgive the sins you know we struggle with every day. And Lord, we trust you to protect us, that you would help us face the tests that you allow into our lives without falling into sin, without doubting your goodness, just simply trusting you one step at a time. We pray in Jesus' name.